And with this last reflection on the councils, we turn to the most absurd one. Let me read two passages that I think convey that absurdity fairly well. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. And then from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and following. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each, of, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Years ago, a bride chose that for the wedding mass and insisted that I preach on it demanded it. You're going to tell me to be subject to my husband. And for some of you, that was the reading because there was, because decades ago, uh, there was no option. That was always the reading at mass, at the wedding mass. Obedience is the most absurd of the councils. To the, to the world, the church's teaching regarding human sexuality seems to be the most absurd. But in reality, uh, we're even more absurd than that, aren't we? Uh, because it's, it's not just a teaching about what we possess or our own bodies, but our own will. If the world dislikes poverty and chastity, it absolutely abhors obedience. The fallen world begins with an act of disobedience. And our culture really is structured on license, on doing whatever we want without regard for limits. Now our, our bodies don't even indicate a limit. 
We can, we can change them according to whatever we think. Uh, this is sort of, you know, the air that we're breathing is one of, of doing whatever you want. And freedom means precisely that. Uh, Outback Steakhouse had the, the silly motto years ago, no rules, just right. Which, which is absurd in a theological, philosophical way, also in an economical way, because I manage their, I imagine their employees did not abide by that, by that motto. But we, in our culture, associate freedom with doing whatever we want. And so obedience seems completely absurd. And in the church, we speak of the virtue of obedience. And we're still, we speak of things like subordination, submission, being subject. It all sounds awfully crushing. But this is at the heart of becoming like Christ in your sacrament of marriage. Christ himself was obedient. If we don't understand that, we don't understand him. This is why that passage from Philippians 2 is so important. He became obedient even unto death. And then St. Paul goes further, death on a cross. He didn't become obedient just to dying peacefully, but in the most, the most brutal and humiliating manner. On another occasion, our Lord makes very clear to the apostles his obedience to the Father. Uh, it's throughout John's Gospel. My personal favorite line is uh, John 4, after the conversation with the woman at the well. Our Lord says to the apostles, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Remember, he had sent them away to get food, and they came back with the food, and he says, well, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. In an old translation, I like it even more. He says, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. It really, it's, that's the translation that appeals more to men, right? It's like, my ribeye is to do the will of the one who sent me. But that line is so evocative, isn't it? It's, our Lord is nourished by his obedience. This is so completely contrary to everything that the world says to us. He draws life from, by submitting himself to the Father's will. And this obedience, this submission to the Father, the same word is used to describe the church's submission to Christ and wives. It's the same word that describes, that St. Paul uses to describe the wife's submission to the husband. And I'll get to that in a little bit. I read that very popular passage, right, Ephesians 5, and uh, one of you has, has termed it the nudge passage. Because when spouses here together start nudging one another. Now, some take obedience to indicate a hatred for man's free will. That obedience means that, it, that the crushing up and the, the, the grinding up of our free will. When in fact, it's just the opposite. Because only the one who has freedom of will can be obedient. 
can give himself or give herself. The one whose will is compromised cannot do that. Only the obedient person can be free. If only a free person can truly be obedient, this reverse is true as well. Only the obedient person can be free. Because our freedom needs to be ordered towards something. The mistake that our culture makes is to think that freedom means whatever we want to do. But in fact, our freedom mean, is for something. It's ordered towards something good. It's ordered most of all to the gift of ourselves in loving God and neighbor. And when we try to do that, when we try to love God and neighbor as, as we desire and as he calls us to do, we quickly become frustrated because we realize we're not free <laughs> because of our sins. Our sins keep getting in the way. We get in the way of ourselves. The saints show us freedom because they've fought against sin. And so now they can really freely serve God and neighbor. Freedom without a purpose is just dissolution. It's like setting water free from the confines of a pipe. <laughs> now it, it actually isn't useful anymore, is it? It doesn't have a purpose, it's just spilt out. Free will without a purpose or destination is not only meaningless, but it's dangerous because we don't know where it's going to land. We don't know what it's going to fasten onto. Obedience is not a violation of freedom. In fact, it's the fulfillment of it. Our freedom is given to us precisely so that we can bind ourselves to the Lord unreservedly. And for you in marriage, you used your freedom to bind yourselves to one another. That's why when you, when you first went and met with the priest, for some of you many years ago, and the priest did the prenuptial investigation, it's a legal document for the church, one of the questions that's put to you under oath is about your freedom to marry. Because this is necessary for, for the bond, for the sacrament. You need to be able to give yourself freely. And what happens when we don't use our freedom for that purpose? Well, we see it all around us. We see so many unhappy people whose freedom is kind of rotting on the vine because they've not given themselves to anything. And they think they're living the life. But as the years go by, they realize their freedom has not realized its purpose because they've not bound themselves to the Lord or to another in marriage or to any truth. And so freedom is used for you to bind yourselves in marriage to one another and to be obedient. Obedient to what? I made a promise of, obedient to the bishop, of, of obedience to the bishop. You know, men and women religious make a vow of obedience to their superiors. Uh, you have not done either, but you're still called to exercise this obedience, to live out this example of Christ, this imitation of Christ, 
So what does it mean for you? Well, first, it's the obedience to the truth about marriage. It's interesting the way we discuss marriage. We, we speak of entering into marriage. It's an interesting expression. Marriage is something that, that is already, it's a building already, already built. You enter into it. And you don't get to redesign it. Uh, our culture wants to redesign marriage. Uh, and, and, and then enter into it. But, which makes no sense. Marriage is not our own creation. It is something that a man and woman enter into and they have to accept it on its own terms, not what they want it to be. And so your life is to be shaped and characterized by the truth of marriage. And that's where the obedience comes in. And, and not a slavish obedience, but the obedience of a disciple or a student. Think of a great athlete or a great, a great musician. At some point, that athlete, that musician had to be obedient to, to the master. And the more they interiorized the instructions, the more perfect they became in, in their talent. That instruction and that obedience didn't compromise their freedom, perfected it. And so the more you try to conform yourselves to the truth of marriage, in a sense, the more free you become in living out marriage. And even those who are experts have to be disciples at the same time. A great musician still has to follow the, the conductor uh, of the orchestra. Pedro Martinez had a pitching coach till the day he retired. Okay, that's a select group of you who's going to get that. <laughs> the temptation we always face is to create a reality of our own and to live that. So it becomes marriage on your own terms. Marriage as you want it to be. We see our culture doing that in sort of a grand scale. But we all do it, don't we? On a smaller scale. Wanting to be obedient to, well, my truth about marriage. What I think I ought to be doing. Or how I think I ought to be living this out. Don't pray to, for, for marriage to be to your liking. Pray to, to be more to marriage's liking, to, to accept the truth of marriage as it is, and your marriage, your spouse, in the concrete. So instead of shaping yourselves according to the truth of what you would like, pray to be shaped according to what the Lord wants you to be. A great prayer of obedience is, Lord, shape me to the spouse that my spouse needs me to be. Not what I want to be, not what he or she wants me to be, but what he or she needs me to be. Shape me in that way. That's a prayer of obedience. And it's a generous prayer. You know it's a generous one because it's tough to say. For the record, 
we priests have the same temptation to live the priesthood on our own terms, not Christ's. So we're all in the same boat, wanting our vocation on our own terms. And obedience means, no, I, 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 I want this on the Lord's terms. I want to be shaped and conformed to his will, not my own. And freedom is necessary not just at the start of marriage to contract the bond validly, but also within marriage. Are you acting in a free manner uh, in your married life, or are you begrudging in what you have to do? Keep this in mind. We can do freely what we're already obligated to do. We can do freely what we're already obligated to do. I was already obligated to come here uh, on a beautiful Saturday. <laughs> the World Cup game's on. Uh, and I could have come here begrudgingly, making my life miserable for myself and for all of you, uh, or choose to do it freely. The dishwasher needs to be emptied. You can do it freely, in sort of a cheerful, gracious way, or begrudgingly, you know, making a sound with each plate that's taken <laughs> out of the dishwasher onto the shelf. How do we respond to those little duties of married life that, that have, to be, they have to be accomplished? They have to be done. And are we despising the, those little duties? That's where great freedom is lived out, doing those things generously. And that's where great love is shown because it's only the free person who can love. But there's no getting away from St. Paul's description of the husband as head of the wife and wife as the body. A, I once heard someone say that the marriage between uh, uh, that marriages, that, that the relationship between Christ and the church is compared to a marriage. No. Marriage is compared to the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the reality. The image is here. The icon is here. Each couple here is an icon of that. Something to be reverenced. And so St. Paul's words in Ephesians 5, which can sound so harsh to our modern ears, uh, well, they speak of obedience. Obedience of the head and the body to one another. Notice the way he begins. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Strive for obedience to that line. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, it's not even a command technically in the Greek. He simply says, subject to one another. He's just describing what marriage is. You are subject to one another. Each one is, in, in its proper way, submitting to the other. And he just goes on to describe it in terms, of course, Christ and the church, the head and the body. There's a certain subjection that each has to the other. The body must lead, the, the head, rather, must lead the body. 
the head, the, the, the place of, uh, of reason, thought, and decision-making must guide the body. Uh, if that's not happening, we're living like animals. And so, in governing the body, the head might at times have to give a command. Yes, I, I know you want to go to sleep, but we need to stay up and you know, com complete this chore or, or this work that needs to be done. I know you want to sleep, but we must get up and you know, take care of these things. That's the head governing the body. But notice that the body, the head also in a certain sense has to be subject to the body, in this sense. If the head neglects the body, <laughs> it, it looks kind of foolish and the body can shut down, right? The fully integrated person is the one you, who you, you don't know. It's the, the body and the head are, are, are operating so in such unison that there, there's a beauty there. There's a perfection. And someone who's living only in his head, well, that's not a fully integrated person. So at times the body must say, yes, I know you want to keep doing this, I know you want to keep fasting or, or stay up late praying, but I'm tired or I'm hungry and this is not good for my health. And so the body also speaks to the head. And there has to be that, that integration. There's a hierarchy here. That's a dirty word in our culture, I know. But the body, of course, has a hierarchy between the, the head and the body proper. And so I think this is a way of understanding marriage. And St. Paul, yes, he's describing as the, the husband as the head of, of the wife, as Christ is head of the body, giving himself up for the church, enduring a humiliating and excruciating death. That's the standard to which a husband must be obedient. That is the standard to which he must hold himself. To be head means to take the lead in devotion to Christ crucified. To be head means to take that initiative in prayer, in devotion, in charity. And to be body, to be subject, doesn't mean to be humiliated. To be subject to, to Christ for the church does not mean humiliation or degradation. It means being ennobled. should also point out, in addition to the great theology contained in this passage, there's great psychology as well, or sociology perhaps. What's the stereotype of the bad husband? Unconcerned, not loving, not attentive. He's in the other room watching TV or online, but he's not engaged. And so what does St. Paul say to the husbands in Ephesus? Love your wives. You can hear him say, guys, would it kill you to turn off the TV and, and, and go, go help, you know, get dinner ready? You know, would it kill you to, 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 to put aside uh, the, 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 the cell phone and just give your attention to your children? And what's the stereotype? of the bad wife, the nag, trying to control everything. It's common trope in, in, uh, in literature, in, in, uh, in entertainment, 
both of these, the inattentive husband, the nagging wife. And so you can hear St. Paul saying to the wives in Ephesus, you know, maybe let him take the lead on some things. Don't try to step in on everything. But most of all, St. Paul wants that healthy integration of husband and wife, of head and body, so that when we look at a couple, we don't immediately think of who's in charge or who has authority. But what we see is, first and foremost, this mutual subjection, each being attentive to the other. It's going to have different characteristics because men and women are different. And a man is called to be an icon of Christ, the head. A woman is called to be an icon of the church, his body. This is a great calling. An icon, as many of you know, is of course a sacred image which, different from our paintings or stained glass windows, an icon in the East is really, it's a sacramental. It's considered to really to sort of not be the presence of Christ the way our Lord here in the Eucharist is, but to be a sacramental, something kind of approaching that. And so those, those images are revered. That's what we should encounter in, in married couples as well, an icon that evokes reverence. This is your calling. There's a more mundane use of the word icon as well. We all know it. It's the icon on the screen. And you tap it, and it leads you to something else, right? Well, that's a good description of marriage as well. You are to be that icon that when people encounter you, they're encountering more than you. They're encountering in your, your obedience to the truth of marriage, in your mutual subjection to one another, in your love and respect for one another. They're encountering, although they might not know it, they're encountering an icon of Christ in the church. They're bumping up against that eternal marriage. Don't let it go to your head. But this is, this is the great vocation that is yours, is to strive in your obedience to these truths, to image Christ in the church uh, so constantly, so faithfully, that people get a taste, a foretaste of what it is. And so, as Bishop Burbage said earlier, so that when people see you, they, they can they can point to you as an as accurate a depiction or icon of Christ in the church as we can have in this world. Do not be afraid of this obedience that, is, that, that you are called to. It is only in following in this path that we become like Christ. And it is striving in that that his grace is, is that we avail ourselves of his grace. And finally, to turn our thoughts to Joseph and Mary. Joseph was the head of the Holy Family. He is the one who is commanded by the angel, you shall name him Jesus, because it was the Father's task, his duty to do so. It was his responsibility to protect and to provide. And Joseph was keenly aware of his insufficiency. But he did not allow that to 
keep him from his duty of headship. And in exercising that headship, he did so in all humility because he knew that the ones he served were greater than he. May every husband have that same sense of duty and of humility. And Our Lady, in turn, rejoicing in Joseph's leadership, in his headship, not desiring it for herself, not wanting to take control, but desiring that, that he really be who God has appointed him to be, desiring that for him and, by extension, uh, for herself and for the child. May every wife desire the same for her husband and, and desire to, to, to participate in that, to assist him in that noble task uh, so that under that solid and strong providing and protection, uh, she can in turn uh, receive that new life and nurture it always.